Good morning. I'm going to be reading two passages this morning. The first is from Zechariah 9. It's verse 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I'm flipping over to Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, good morning. So as we go through this Advent series, one of the things we're doing is we're looking at the way Matthew of the Gospel writers shows us the hope that had been promised hundreds of years before Christ and was fulfilled in him. See, this is how you can be in an Advent series and get the triumphal entry in your text for the morning, right? This is one that's only usually preached on Palm Sunday, (laughs) but we're moving it because it accords with the most common pronouncement about Jesus' birth. Of all the things that were announced, I wonder if you know what word almost everybody was using to proclaim the birth of Jesus. It's the word peace. When Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the angels announce that God has shown favor on his people, and now, finally, he is going to bring peace to the earth. Even before that, when Zechariah, whose name for our prophet this morning in our scripture reading, who was a priest and the father of John the Baptist, when he prophesied about the coming of the Savior, he said this, he will give a light to those who sit in darkness, which is what we covered last week, and in the shadow of death, he will guide their feet into peace. And then again, when Jesus is dedicated at the temple, it's his big coming to the house of the Lord. Simeon, another prophet, says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. Something about Jesus' coming is supposed to bring peace on earth. Peace to you and I, peace in our relationships, peace internally, peace among the nations. There is a king, Psalm 2 says, who God has placed on his throne and his legacy will be a never-ending reign of peace. Now, when we think of the word peace, especially at Christmas time, we think 
peace on earth. We think like the pageant answer, like what do you want more than anything in the world? Peace on earth, world peace, that's what we want. Or like my mom for our entire childhood when you asked her what she wanted for Mother's Day, since we had three boys in our house, she said, an afternoon of peace and quiet. And I want you to know that this comes through clenched teeth. It's not just peace, it's peace, (laughs) which we reluctantly did not give to her most years. Or you think of that terrible Yoko Ono song, War is Over, A Very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, Let's Hope It's a Good One Without Any Fear. Boy, what a great lyricist. (laughs) But it does capture what we typically think of with peace, which is the absence of something. Peace means the absence of strife or war or conflict or anxiety. Peace internally means that it's the absence of something that's weighing me down or something that I'm worrying about. Peace on earth means nobody's fighting with one another. But the Bible actually presents a very different lens for peace. When the angels came to announce peace, they weren't saying all the wars and everything, all the striving is going to stop. They weren't announcing the absence of something. They were announcing the presence of something. And so there's just one idea this morning from our text, and that is peace can only come through the presence of the Prince of Peace. That's it. No strategy, no denial, no absence of anything can ever bring true peace. The only thing that can ever bring peace is the presence, the personal presence of the Prince of Peace. So to understand the way the Bible uses the word peace, we have to go back all the way to the beginning of Scripture and figure out what does the Bible talk about when it talks about peace. And if you go back into the Torah, actually the oldest fragment of the Bible that we have, because you know we don't have the manuscripts of the biblical books. We have all the original manuscripts. We have all of these copies and manuscripts, and the oldest fragment of the Bible we have was found in a little burial cave in the 1970s, but it only came to light in the last 10 years. It was under a caved-in roof and under these skeletons that had been buried there, there were two little silver scrolls. They were so small that actually they think that people had worn these as necklaces. And so you would put it on a chain through the middle, and you had this little scroll. And using computers and all kinds of technology, they were able to unroll, digitally unroll these scrolls. And on these, they found these words. The Lord bless you and keep you, and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, and give you peace. It's the oldest blessing in the Bible. It's from Numbers chapter 6. It's known as the blessing of Aaron, or the Levitical blessing. And God says in Numbers chapter 6, this is what you are to speak over my people. This is how you are to bless them. The Lord bless you, and the outcome of that blessing will be peace. The only way for God's people to have peace, he says in this passage to the priests, is if my blessing rests on them. Now, this word for peace is the word shalom. And shalom, lots of people have talked about shalom. You're probably familiar with this word. Shalom now is a greeting. It's like if you go to the Middle East, what do they say to each other? They don't say hi, they don't say what's up, they say shalom. 
which means blessing or health or well-being to you and your household. It's, com- it's so common now that you probably don't even think about what it means. It's like when we say be well to someone. We don't think about the physical and health implications. It's just something you say. But this word has become common because it was the pinnacle of something you could wish for someone. Shalom. Not just the freedom from something, but the complete and total blessing of God be on you so that every part of your life is filled with prosperity and health and the presence of God. It's like the difference now between when we say, how are you, and somebody says, good, which really means okay, versus somebody you say, how are you, and they surprise you by saying something like, fantastic. You're like, what's got them all up you know, today? Shalom means I'm not doing neutral. I'm not even doing good. I am at my absolute best. In fact, maybe you don't know this, but the most famous instance of the word shalom in the Old Testament is in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom and not for evil, plans to give you a hope and a future. See, this was the promise they were clinging to from the book of Numbers all the way back in the Torah, all the way through the prophets, that someday God would come and bless his people in such a way that they would finally have shalom, peace, well-being. In fact, you could trace a thread through the entire Old Testament, and I would encourage you, if you're going to start a Bible reading plan in the new year, look for peace and blessing and shalom because it runs from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament. That these people are waiting, even when they're doing great and they're serving God during the time of David and Solomon, to when they're being exiled away from their land that has promised them, they are waiting saying, someday God will bring his shalom back to us. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, in the most famous Christmas prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 7 all the way through 9, he says the real promise is that someday there will be a king. He's not just going to be an earthly king. It's going to be a heavenly king. And they're going to call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Because that's the only way to really bring lasting peace, is if God comes down to the earth, and makes his presence known, and begins to reign among his people, and the kingdom of God comes, and people begin to obey him, and he is in the midst of them. That's the promise of the prince of peace. But after that, the Israelites are exiled, and they are cast not just away from the presence of God, from the temple, from the land, from the blessing, from everything they had hoped for. And then a remnant begin to come back. So after 70 years of being conquered and sent out, They get this edict that they can return and begin to rebuild their temple. Now, here's the problem. The temple of Solomon was one of the wonders of the world. I mean, it's, it's almost redundant when you read about it, how many things are covered with gold and ornate precious metals and jewels. I mean, it it was people came from across all of the world to see it. In fact, when the Babylonians conquered the temple, They hauled everything back to Babylon and built the hanging gardens of Babylon, right? Two times in the history of the world, the temple has been ransacked to build the most prominent building and uh, empire of the world. When it was sacked by the Babylonians, they took all the gold back and they built one of the wonders of the ancient world. In 70 AD, after they ransacked the temple and brought it back, they funded a rebate to all the people of Rome in the province because of how rich the treasure was that they had plundered. But at this time during history, with that in the back of their minds, they're building a shanty temple. 
This is a wood temple. No gold, no glamour, no cloud, no fire, no Solomon, no nothing. And in fact, the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah, which most of you probably have memorized, I'm just giving you a recap here, they, they're saying, how could God ever dwell in a place like this? It's nothing compared to what it used to be. It's embarrassing how simple this is. And a prophet named Zechariah comes along. And Zechariah is prophesying about what God is going to do through this meager temple. He says things like, it's not going to be accomplished by your might. It's not going to be accomplished by your power. It's going to be accomplished by my spirit, says the Lord. This is going to be a demonstration not of the might of Israel and Judah, but of the might of God in history. And by the time we get to chapter 9, as Crystal read for us this morning, Zechariah says, you remember that old promise about shalom? You remember that old promise about a king who would one day come and be the prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father? Do you remember how the prophets of old said that one day God would return to Israel? He says, behold, your king is going to come. And he's not going to come in splendor and in glory like an earthly king. He's going to come righteous and humble, mounted on a donkey, on the colt, a foal of a donkey. And the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses of Jerusalem are going to be cut off because this king is going to speak peace to the nations. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river, that's the river Euphrates, all the way to the ends of the earth. His kingdom will be one of peace. Now fast forward about 400 years. And on a Sunday morning, a little-known teacher, miracle worker from Nazareth, of whom the disciples said, could anything possibly good come from Nazareth? Decides that he's going to do a live action parable. And he says to his disciples, I want you to go into town and I want you to go find a donkey. Actually, better yet, get the foal of a donkey who's never been ridden before. And I want you to take that donkey and its colt and I want you to bring them back to me. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, I love the practical nature of what Jesus is saying here. If anybody's like, why are you stealing our donkey? Say, the Lord requires it. The Lord needs it. I would love if one of the gospel writers would have told us how that went when they said that. But he says, tell them that the Lord needs it. And they go into town and they get this donkey and it's full and they bring it back out. And Jesus gets on and begins to ride up the mountain into Jerusalem. Because on that Sunday, for the only time in Jesus' life, we get to see the king finally come to Jerusalem. See, what people knew when Jesus comes by, the reason they start doing these crazy things like chopping down palm branches and taking their coats off and throwing them on the ground is not just because it was Jesus, the miracle worker, it was because this is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the king. This is the one who's coming in, and they thought he's going to bring peace by throwing off the Romans, and he's going to bring us into the golden age that has been promised. And so they're saying things like, Hosanna, which means save us, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. And they're bowing down, and they're worshiping him, and I love the way this is said, in, not in Matthew, in, in Luke, it says, if these wouldn't praise, even the rocks would cry out. 
because the king has finally come to earth. See, the story this morning in Matthew chapter 21 isn't just a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's a coronation. It's a crowning ceremony of Jesus Christ who is going to be the king. He's going to inaugurate the kingdom of God. But as soon as they realize what's happening, they must have been dumbfounded by the fact that his crown is not like the crown jewels. His crown is a crown of thorns. And his reign is going to be humble and lowly. And here you have the paradox of Jesus. One of the commentators says, those with eyes to see could tell that Jesus was not only proclaiming his messiahship and the fulfillment of Scripture, but showing the kind of peace-loving approach he was making into the city. See, Jesus did something that was totally unexpected. He made peace, Paul said, by the blood of his cross. Kings don't do that. Have you noticed that? Kings, Kings don't make peace by laying down their life. Kings make peace by conquering their enemies, by consolidating their power, by ruling in such a way that their will is done in every place. And we do pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But when we pray for the kingdom, we worship a king who came into Jerusalem as a king and died as a beggar, thief, reject. The reign of Jesus is a reign of peace because it involves laying your life down for others. Right In such a way that now the very presence of Christ among us brings peace because it's the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend of God. Right, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because he laid himself down for us when we were still sinners so that he might reconcile us to God forever through his atoning death. So, If the Prince of Peace, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and the only way to find peace is through the presence of Christ, how do we find peace? How do we find peace, especially this time of year, which is not the most peaceful time of year? How do we find peace in the Lord? I saw this week that the verse of the year on version. this is the most shared, most highlighted, most notes taken on it, verse of the year is Isaiah 41.10 which says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I started thinking about, why do you think that was the verse of the year? There's a lot of great verses, but why is this one, fear not, for I am with you, which is the most common promise in the Bible, fear not, I am with you. Why is this the verse of the year? Because we live, like it or not, in a peaceless age, internally peaceless, externally peaceless, globally peaceless. We live in a society that has higher rates of anxiety and depression than anywhere else in the world, higher rates of suicide than almost anywhere else in the world, totally internally tumultuous, not peaceful. And because of that, we have a longing for peace that is greater than at almost any time in history. We have people who are longing for something to give them peace. And I I think you have to explain this verse by being the verse of the year by how many people are looking for something to bring them peace. But my point this morning is something will never bring you peace. Only someone can bring you peace. 
right? That's what God actually promises in this verse is, fear not for the difficult things in your life are going to go away. That's, that's not what he says. Fear not for you will find an internal sense of calm. Fear not for I'm going to make your wildest dreams come true. That's what you say if you're looking for something to give you peace. He says, fear not, I am with you. I am with you. The presence of the Prince of Peace in your life is the only way to find peace. It's the only way in a peaceless world to find peace. I was talking with a friend this week about heroes, and in a moment of kind of disillusion, he was talking about how few of his heroes have stayed the course. Religious heroes, business heroes, just people in general that he's looked up to in his life, and how few of them finish well. And how few of them, he says, when I you know, would call somebody 20 years ago to ask for advice, would I call the same group of people now? It's like, it's almost embarrassing to admit the people I looked up to then, I would never call for advice now. It's that old phrase, don't meet your heroes, right? It's better to just observe from afar than to get the real reality of what's going on. But it made me think about it. What, what kind of person would Jesus have to be to bring peace? What this passage tells us is he's the ultimate meet your heroes, in the sense that what Isaiah prophesies about Jesus and what Jesus comes to be is powerful but humble, all-knowing yet a listener. Right? Have you been around the people that when you talk to them, you can tell they're just thinking the next thing that they're going to say? Jesus already knows everything. He should be the ultimate person who is thinking about what he is going to say. But Jesus, it says, in the gospel, says, come to me, all who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He's available when you go to him. He's the wonderful counselor. Right? We think about this in kind of our therapeutic language, like he's the ultimate person where you lay down on the couch and you give your, your troubles to him. Wonderful counselor in Isaiah means he is a counselor of wonders, of miracles. He is the person who recommends what only God can accomplish in your life. He's the person that when you come to him, he gives you things that would be so crazy if it weren't for God and his Holy Spirit that end up coming true in your life. He is mighty God himself. All the power in the universe is available to him to do whatever he pleases. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. He is uniquely qualified, supernaturally empowered, gifted with the knowledge of us to our very core to be our present Savior and peace giver. You will never find peace until you have his presence in your life. Now, many of you in here do have his presence in your life. And so we need to look not just to ourselves, how do we find peace? Because if you have peace with God, you have peace with yourself. You've been forgiven. You've been set free. You've been empowered. You have a new mission. You have a a host of things that are going to start blooming in your life, the fruits of the Spirit and the, the works of God and the good deeds that he's prepared for you. But what about peace relationally? What about peace with other people? In 2003, there was a journalist named Chris Hedges who surveyed all of written history to see how much of history was filled with peace. So he surveys 3,400 years, and he has all these criteria, like 
peace means there's not a global conflict, or there's not a famine reaching so many millions of people, or there's not an oppressive genocide reaching so many. He has all these thresholds, but he concluded that in 3,400 years of written history, there were 268 years of peace. That's 8% of human history. God's plan, therefore, must be to bring peace in the midst of conflict. Right? We can look back and say, okay, the plan must be that there will be global peace in the reign of Christ. But history would tell us maybe God is after a different kind of relational peace. If you're not at peace with God, you're never going to be at peace with other people because Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, Christ himself is our peace. Think about how profound this is for a moment. It's not Christ himself will just bring you peace. It's not just that Christ himself and his people will feel his peace. Christ is peace. This is so profound in the way that we go about being peacemakers. If you think about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And if you think about everything we've been talking up to this point, what would that entail? Does that entail just having like the best conflict management skills that you could ever muster up? I mean, that's helpful. I'm not dogging that. But I think maybe Jesus means something a little bit more than that. Does it mean just that if you just go along, get along, and don't offend anyone, then all of a sudden peace will break out among you and your friends and family? No. He himself is our peace. The best thing you can do relationally to bring peace, to be a peacemaker, is to bring Jesus into every situation that you're in. He himself, it says, bridged the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles, historically as alienated, as uh, apart from each other as any group of people could be. The only way to reconcile them was that Jesus himself had a hold of the Jews on, with one hand and the Gentiles in the other, and his span between the two brought peace. It says, he through his body brought down the wall of hostility and separation through them, making peace between the two. Terry Trammell preached this sermon actually in our Ephesians series, if you remember, and the sermon I think was called something like tearing something down and building something up. And the work of Christ is summarized in those two things. He tells this to the prophets, he tells this to the gospel writers, that God's work of peace in your life is going to involve tearing things down, walls of hostility, and building things up, peace between two people. We need Christ to fill us and fill our relationships, and the thing we need most in our relationships is through us, if necessary, through others, through both sides, if possible, Christ to walk into our relationships. It's like when we were about to have Davy, we get to the hospital, and it's the Saturday night before Easter. Some of you guys remember, Grant did a great job in our Easter service uh, preaching because we had just had Davy, and so it gets to be like midnight, and turning from Saturday to Sunday, not a hot time to be on call uh, if you're a hospitalist or an OB. And there's no doctor. So we've got great nurses. We've got my sister-in-law there who's doing a great job. I'm there doing my best. And no doctor. So it gets to be 1 o'clock. No doctor. It gets to be 2 o'clock. No doctor. It gets to be time to push. No doctor. And we're looking at each other like, I'm about to have to put those gloves on and use my doctorate, which is not in medicine, <laughs> to deliver this baby. 
and we're asking the nurse, and she's freaking out, and we're starting to get that kind of panic feeling, and literally at the last minute, I won't go into it any more than this to say, the last possible moment you could bill for a delivery, the doctor walks in. And I tell you what, you could see a difference in the room from the moment you saw his scrubs. You knew. Okay, somebody knows what they're doing. Somebody who's been here before. Somebody who is going to take care of us. Somebody who's going to ensure that things go the way they should. Somebody who has the power and the knowledge and the care and the concern within themselves to make this situation right. If you want peace in your life, you've got to have Jesus walk into the room. You have to have Jesus come in and do his will, not our will for peace, his will in our relationships. So I want to give one more example before we continue in worship this morning of peace. And I think this is the thing, if you could take something away about the presence of Christ bringing peace, this is it. When Jesus was born, his parents took him to the temple to dedicate him. And they go and they give their offering, and there's an old man in the temple who has been there for some time, and it says he has been waiting for decades for the consolation of Israel. Now, this is just such a fascinating word. He is waiting for the comfort of Israel, the encouragement of Israel, the act of emboldening someone is what this word means of Israel. He was waiting for God's comfort to come back to Israel. He's waiting for the Zechariah 9 promise to come true, the Isaiah promise to come true, the blessing of number six to come true. And God had told him in a prophecy, You will not die until you see the consolation, until you see the Prince of Peace come. That morning, Jesus came in with his parents into the temple, and Simeon knew that this was it. Nothing had changed in the temple. Nothing had changed in his life. Nothing had changed in his circumstances. But someone was present that hadn't been there before. The Prince of Peace had come into his temple. And Simeon says, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, in the early church, Simeon was known as Theodokos, which means God receiver. It means God receiver. And the church fathers would look back and they would say, Simeon is the example of someone who had finally found the peace he was looking for because he was a God receiver. He was Theodokos Simeon, Simeon who had received God. In his presence this Christmas, are you a Theodokos? Are you someone who people look at and they say, that person found their peace because they are a God receiver? They, this Christmas, of all the people I know, I look at them and I say, they are the ones who have peace because they have received the Prince of Peace. Do people look at your life in a peaceless world, and know not just that you have it all together on the outside, but that you have received him, and you are making peace by him and through him, internally, externally, in your family, in the world around you, at the Christmas party, during the Christmas shopping, are you a Theodokos, someone who has received God, and now 
you are living a life of peace. Let me pray. Father, we want to be like Simeon. Lord, we, we too want to know that the thing that we have been waiting for has come true because of the coming of your son. Father, this morning, many of us in here have taken your son. We have clung to him in faith. We have put our trust in him. Now, would you turn us around and help us to bring his presence into every room that we walk into? Father, would you help us to reflect that we serve a different king and a different kingdom than the kingdom we live in? Father, that there's something different about us, but it's not about us. It's about you. And it's about your son. Father, help us to speak words of peace. Help us to put our interests aside so that we can humbly and lovingly serve others the way that Christ has served us. Father, as we worship now, fill our hearts with opportunities to bring peace to the people around us. Father, we love you and we model our lives after your son, who you gave to bring peace between you and us. We love you for that. We celebrate that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.